Thank you for joining me on the Go and Teach radio program. My name is Ryan Goodwin. I preach for the Monte Vista Church of Christ here in Phoenix, Arizona. Have your Bibles open at this time, if you have a Bible handy, to Luke chapter 10 and verse 27. When Jesus is asked, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? His response is simply, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? Now, the scribe from this passage said in verse 27, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said in verse 28, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. This passage suggests that there are three relationships that we need to foster in order to have a strong spiritual life. The first of which is a relationship with God, and that must be above all else more important to you than all of earth's treasures or any other achievement that you could have. You must love the Lord your God with every fiber of your being, all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. But then you must also love your neighbor. That's the second kind of relationship that we need to develop, to love your neighbor. But there's another part of it here, a third relationship that sometimes gets lost as we read this passage. He says to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you don't have a relationship with yourself, if you don't love yourself in some way, then this statement doesn't mean anything. To love your neighbor as yourself means that you are basing the love of your neighbor on the same kind of love that you have of self-preservation, of caring about your own personal interests, of taking care of yourself, of being concerned about your safety and your well-being and your happiness. Now, you love your neighbor first. You give your neighbor love first before yourself. But if you don't love yourself, then again, the statement that's made here in Luke 10 verse 27 doesn't mean anything. So I want to take a few minutes to look a little more closely at these three relationships before we make some practical applications. First of all, having a relationship with God. God created us. And it is difficult to have the life that he promises, the abundant spiritual life, unless we're in touch with the ultimate source of life. Only through this relationship, not any other, not your brother or sister, your husband, your wife, or your parents, but only through this relationship can we know who we are meant to be as Christians, to know where we came from, and ultimately where our souls are going. Each of us needs to love and be loved by someone significant. And God loves you so much that if you were the only person living on earth, well, Jesus would still have died for you. Remember that God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. He gave his only begotten son. And whether there's one person on earth or seven billion people on earth, God cares about his creation. Most of all, he cares about the creation that is created in his image, which alone is mankind. Willard Tate had this to say in a lecture from a number of years ago. Sailors at sea near the Antarctic often saw a strange sight. They would see a giant iceberg towering high out of the sea, moving against the wind. Not with the wind, but against the wind. This, of course, frightened the sailors because their ships were powered by the wind. 
Later, they discovered that only a fraction of the great iceberg was visible, and that its huge roots were caught in the great currents of the ocean. It was driven purposefully along its way, regardless of the direction of the wind. Well, this is what we need. A relationship with God so rich and deep that we move along our way regardless of the winds on the surface of our life. I thought that was a really great analogy, a good illustration that the writer used. James 2.23 says Abraham is God's friend. You and I have a lot of friends also, but just imagine being a friend of God. Imagine that relationship defining you. Abraham, the friend of God. The kind of friends who walk and who talk together. The kind of friends who share with each other. The kind of friends who actually know each other. Not just, not just keeping each other at arm's length, but really knowing each other. Both the Old and New Testaments picture for us the kind of relationship that God desires with his people. The idea is the Lord as the husband and the people as his bride. As Isaiah 54 verses 5 and 6 says, For thy maker is thy husband, for the Lord hath called thee as a wife. Jeremiah 3 verse 20, Surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel. And I'm sure that we're all very familiar with Ephesians chapter 5. In the second half of that chapter, the Apostle Paul talks about the relationship of the husband and wife being parallel to the relationship of Christ to his church. He says that it's a great mystery, but it's a mystery that we can understand. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. For I espoused you to one husband that I might present to you as a pure virgin to Christ. The book of Revelation speaks of the marriage of the lamb and his bride that has made herself ready to be married. This means that God doesn't just want to be our friends, that God actually wants to have a relationship with us that goes beyond mere friendship. It is a relationship of spiritual intimacy, not physical intimacy, but of spiritual intimacy, where soul understands soul, where spirit speaks in a spiritual way. But God doesn't just desire a relationship that's like husband and wife. He also desires the relationship of father to children. He's pictured in this way in Exodus 4, verse 22, which says, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. Isaiah 1 and verse 2, I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. Hosea 1.10, Ye are the sons of the living God. The New Testament also includes many references to the father and son relationship. God is easily seen as the father of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Romans chapter 8 and Galatians 4 talk about the way that Christianity is like adoption into the household of God, so that we're able to say to the Heavenly Father, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. God loves us, and God values us, and it is only in God that we can know our true worth. But let's move on to the second relationship. We need to have a relationship with other people, and they need to be healthy relationships. They need to be unselfish. 
self-sacrificing relationships in the same way that we would take care of ourselves to watch out for our personal safety, our well-being, and our happiness. So we must put others even ahead of that, that we love others with the same kind of love, even in excess of the kind of love that we have for ourselves. What you do for others, not what others do for you, that's what gives you relationships with other people that are long-lasting, that are based on God's expectations. But I guess the next question that somebody might ask is, why? Why love other people as you love yourself? Why does anybody deserve that kind of love? Well, they don't. Quite frankly, they don't. That's an important point to think about, is that we give love to other people, not because they deserve it, but because we're told to love them. We're even told to love our enemies and to pray for them, according to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And are they worth our love because of their pleasing personalities, because of all the things they've done to deserve our love or earn our love? No. They're valuable because Jesus laid his life down for them. That is the ultimate meaning of love. That is how we know what love is. That's the standard by which all love is measured. 1 John 3, verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid his life down for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. 1 John 3, verses 9 and 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son to the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. These passages in 1 John 3 and later on in chapter 4, they explain very clearly that our relationship with God comes first. It also says, though, that unless we have an ongoing loving relationship with other people, that we nullify our relationship with God. The Apostle John goes on to say in 1 John 3 verse 17, But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? It's a great question. How can you say that you love God, but you won't take care of the people who are right in front of you? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Go on to chapter 4. And he says in chapter 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. If you say that you have love for God, but no love for man, no love even for your enemies, no love for anybody, you can't love God. It's impossible. The lack of love for your fellow human being nullifies or negates whatever love you might claim to have for God. Verse 10 and 11, as we already read, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, if that's the kind of love that he has for us, we also ought to love one another. Go to the end of chapter 4 now. In the last couple of verses of chapter 4, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. But as I said earlier in our radio program, 
how do we really know what that love is unless we have a certain kind of love for ourselves? When Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself, or when that's the conclusion that the scribe comes to in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says, that's correct, that's right. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you don't love yourself, then that statement doesn't have any punch behind it. It has no teeth to it. A self-loathing person who is told to love his neighbor as himself might well walk away thinking, well, I suppose I'm doing all right then if I just loathe everybody else around me. My friends, all of our relationships are influenced by what we think of ourselves. You must have a relationship with God. You must have a relationship with other people. And you need to have a positive relationship with who you are. It's God first, others second, then self. But in a way, a lot of this does begin with the way that I talk to myself, the way that I perceive myself. What I say to myself about my relationship with Christ and my relationship with others makes a difference in my life. I don't know, maybe 80% of what we say to ourselves is about ourselves. We talk to ourselves with words and pictures and feelings. Much of what we say to ourselves is nonsense. We often put ourselves down. We belittle, belittle ourselves. God wants us to love him and to love others and to love ourselves, but we'll never have a perfect self-image. Our inherent worth, our inherent value is perfect, but our image of that worth is always going to be distorted. Other people may influence how we see ourselves, but what we say to ourselves about ourselves often has greater effect. If I go through life always telling myself that I'm a failure and that I'm worthless, if I always go through life putting myself down and saying, I am not worth anything, I'm not valuable, I have no inherent goodness, well, I'll just live to those low expectations. I'll just meet that expectation for myself. And all of my other relationships are going to be colored by that. If I don't see the worth that I have within myself, just as being a creation of God, as being a child of God, then when Jesus says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that statement doesn't mean a lot to me. Instead of being thankful that God loved me so much, that God cared about his creation, I sit back and wonder, well, why? Why would God care about something like me? Why would God care about something as worthless as me? And it perplexes us so badly. Take a quick look at Psalm 103 and look at verses 13 and 14. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. He goes back in verse 8, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. God cares about us, and God loves us the way that a father cares about his children. Now, when a father shows compassion to his children, does the father see his children as being worthless piles of garbage? No. The reason why he has compassion on his children is not because they're worthless piles of garbage, but because they're worth all the world to him. Because he actually cares about them. Because they are valuable, even in failure. Now, my children fail. They're young children, and I love them dearly, but they do fail. They're learning. They're growing. They make mistakes, just as I made mistakes and continue to make mistakes today. 
But just because my children fail me sometimes, or just because my children don't obey me in some way, or just because my children don't yet know how to do something, they've just never been taught or never gone through the experience, I don't see them as any less valuable just because they have failed in some way. In fact, their failure only gives me an opportunity to perfect myself as a father, to show them how much I love them. So with all that being said, we have to understand that When it comes to our self-perception, we don't need to see ourselves as perfect. In fact, it, it would be a complete mistake to see ourselves as morally perfect. But we should try liking ourselves better. Like Proverbs 23 verse 7 says, As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. We need to have thoughts and beliefs that are self-enhancing, that are positive and upbuilding rather than destructive and self-defeating. It's very much like a little chicken struggling to peck herself free from a shell. Now, our first response might be to help the little chick. But if we help her, it may kill her or leave her weak for the rest of her life. We can only do so much for each other. We can provide an environment of warmth and love. We can show the way and we can point to the light. But each individual must do his own pecking. Each individual must find the strength to love himself so that he can love others and love God above all else. So with our last few minutes of our program, let's talk about the challenge of learning how to love better, how to love God better, how to love each other better, and how to show better self-love. Remember, the world doesn't always believe people deserve love. The world says that love should be given very carefully, very shrewdly, that you should mete out love only in small doses to those who are really worth your heart. The world says that you're worth love if you look really good. Uh, You're worth love if you're attractive and beautiful. The world says that you are worth love if you are smart and intelligent, that if you have many achievements, then you're certainly worth love. The world says you're worth love if you have money. Perhaps this is why so many marriages fall apart when couples face financial troubles. Maybe they married each other for money, for economic advantages. And then when the money was gone, what were they left with? Well, not much of a relationship. Well, the world says that you're worth love if you're a great athlete. So we, so we adore the celebrities and the great athletes and their accomplishments. And, and we'll heap praises upon them aplenty. So the world has all these standards that if you are to be worthy or deserving of love, you have to meet certain expectations. When you ask people, what are you looking for in a potential spouse? Or if they're filling out an online profile for a dating website, what is your ideal match? Who are you most attracted to? And what do people say? Well, I'm looking for someone who is attractive and someone who's smart and someone who's athletic And if you can find somebody who's all three of those things, you've hit the boyfriend or girlfriend jackpot. Somebody who's smart, pretty, and athletic. But you know, I've met smart, pretty, and athletic people. And without God, they're still not happy. And without God, they still don't understand love. Society keeps probing us with guilt because we've not arrived, because we've not achieved, because we aren't smart, pretty, rich, athletic, witty enough, tall enough, fast enough, handsome enough. We're not all those things. And even if we are, by somebody's standard, 
we still feel like this unrealistic weight is being put on us. So how can any of us, especially the ordinary folks of us, how can any of us feel love? If we never meet the standard the world sets for us, well, the simple truth is we have to stop accepting the world's standard. You're not worthy of love because you're tall and handsome. You're not worthy of love because you're pretty. You're not worthy of love because you have a PhD. You're not worthy of love because you make $100,000 a year. You are not worthy of love because you're attractive, because you're smart, because you're athletic, because you've achieved great things. You're not worthy of love because of any of those things. When we compare ourselves to a worldly standard, a worldly measurement of value and worth, we'll always come up short. In Galatians 6 and verse 4, Paul writes, Each one should test his own actions, then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 12, We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with someone who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. Let's just be realistic about this. How many of us can be first in line? How many of us can be the president? How many of us can win the race, get the job, get the raise? How many, how many of us can make it to the top by society's standards? And even if we do make it to some top of the heap, how long do we stay there? How long can you be the sexiest person alive, according to People magazine? It's certainly not going to last forever. How long can you be the prettiest person on planet Earth? How long do you get to be the winner of the Miss America pageant? Eventually, the worldly standards of worthiness and value fade. And what are you left with? What are you left with? One time, when Jesus was in the land of Samaria, in John chapter 4, he came to a town called Sychar. And he went to a well. And when he was by himself, he saw a woman there drawing water, and he asked her for a drink. Now the woman was taken aback by this and wondered, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan? Because according to verse 9, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. With the woman's curiosity piqued, Jesus goes on to say in verse 13, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. We find out a little later in the story that the woman was somebody who struggled with love and self-perception. She had a string of bad marriages, of failed relationships, and probably had a reputation in the town for it. But here Jesus is explaining to her that if she continues to drink in a carnal way, that if she focuses only on what the world says satisfies you and fills you, then you'll always be thirsty again. If you're always looking for love in an earthly way, you will always be thirsty. If your self-perception just comes from worldly standards, you'll always fail. Love must come from God. We must understand it and define it from God. And when you drink from the well of God, from Jesus Christ himself, you'll finally learn what it means to love and to be loved, to be valued 
and cared for. Not only that, we're commanded to care for others in the way that we've been cared for, to love others as we love ourselves, to love others in a divine way. That's true love. Now, if you'd like to study this topic further, please reach out to Montevist, and we'd love to sit down, open up the scriptures, and consider this or any other subject that's important to you.